San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three audio and Rocket eighty-eight productions present Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and adapted from stories by Dashiell Hammett. Tonight's story: Slippery Fingers, dramatized by Pete Lutz. I sat across from Frederick Grover in the office at his late father's home, on the outskirts of the city. You're already familiar, of course, with the particulars of my father's, uh, death. The papers are full of it and have been for three days. And I've read them, but I'll need the whole story firsthand. There isn't very much to tell. This Frederick Grover was a short, slender man of something less than 30 years and dressed like a picture out of Vanity Fair. His almost girlish features and voice did nothing to make him more impressive but I began to forget these things after a few minutes. Young Grover was not a sap. He was considered a shrewd article downtown where he was rapidly building up a large and lively business in stocks and bonds and without calling for too much help from his father's millions. A pal of mine, one who ought to know, told me later that Frederick was the best poker player west of Chicago, and I wasn't surprised. Father has lived here alone with the servants since mother's death two years ago. I'm married, you know, and live in town. Last Saturday evening, he dismissed Barton at a little after nine, saying he didn't wish to be disturbed during the evening. And Barton is... Oh, sorry. Barton is... was father's butler, valet, and has... had been with him for quite a few years. So father was here in the library at the time, looking through some papers. The servants' rooms are in the rear, and none of the servants seem to have heard anything during the night. At 7.30 the following morning, Sunday, Barton found Father lying on the floor just to the right of where you're sitting, dead, stabbed in the throat with a brass paper knife. Was this paper knife your father's? Yes, it was always on the table here. Also, the front door was ajar. Yes, go on. The police found bloody fingerprints on the knife, the table, and the front door, but so far they haven't found the man who left the prints, which is why I'm employing your agency. The physician who came with the police placed the time of father's death at between 11 o'clock and midnight. (sighs) Later on Monday, we learned that father had drawn $10,000 in $100 bills from the bank Saturday morning. No trace of the money has been found. Did the police take comparison fingerprints? Yes, mine were taken, as well as the servants, and compared with the ones the police found. Uh, There was no similarity. I think that's all. Do you know of any enemies your father had? I know of none, though he may have had them. You see, I didn't really know my father very well. He was a very uh, reticent man, and until his retirement about five years ago, spent most of his time in South America. That's where most of his mining interests were. He may have had... Dozens of enemies, though Barton, who probably knew more about him than anyone, seems to know of no one who hated father enough to kill him. 
How about relatives? I was his heir and only child, if that's what you're getting at. So far as I know, he had no other living relatives. All right, thank you. I'll talk to the servants now. The maid and the cook could tell me nothing, and I learned very little more from the valet, Barton. That conversation went something like this. I've been with Mr. Henry Grover since 1912, sir. Been with him since Yunnan, Peru, Mexico, and Central America. In spite of that, I'm afraid I know little to nothing about his business or his acquaintances. The night of the murder? No, sir. He didn't seem especially excited or worried. I didn't place too much importance on the time he dismissed me. He usually did so about the same time every evening. Uh, No, sir, I know of nobody he might have communicated with during the day. As for the money you say he withdrew from the bank, well, sir, I never laid eyes on it. I made a quick inspection of the house and grounds, not expecting to find anything, and I didn't. Half the jobs that come to a private detective are like this one. Three or four days, and often as many weeks, have passed since the crime was committed. The police work on the job until they're stumped. Then the injured party calls in a private sleuth, dumps him down on a trail that is old and cold and badly trampled, and expects him to... Oh well, I chose this way of making a living, so... After looking through the Elder Grover's papers and not finding anything to get excited about, I went back to the younger Grover. I'm going to send an accountant out here to go over your father's books. Give him everything he asks for and fix it up with the bank so they'll help him. Ned Root is a human adding machine with educated eyes, ears, and nose. He can spot a kink in a set of books faster than I can see the covers. I sent him out to the Grover house. Keep digging until you find something, Ned, and you can charge Grover whatever you like. Give me something to work on, quick. You got it. This murder had all the earmarks of one that had grown out of blackmail, though there was a chance that it might have been something else. But it didn't look like the work of an enemy or a burglar. Either of them would have packed his weapon with him, wouldn't have trusted to finding it on the premises. George Dean and Marty O'Gar were the city detectives assigned to the case. It didn't take them very long to tell me what they knew about it. We can't get a line on whoever it was made the bloody fingerprints of the Grover place. There's nothing in our files. We sent them out to every large city in the country. But nothing so far has come back. You got the murder weapon and photos of the fingerprints? Thanks. I looked these items over, but they couldn't help me much just now. There seemed to be nothing I could do but get out and dig around until I turned up something somewhere. Then the door to the room where Ogar, Dean, and I were talking open. Gentlemen, this is Mr. Joseph Klein. He wants to talk to you about the Grover murder. Joseph Klein was a hard-bitten citizen for all his prosperous look. 50 or 55, I'd say, with eyes, mouth, and jaw that held plenty of humor, but none of what is sometimes called the milk of human kindness. He came right to the point. He had been a friend of the murdered man's and thought that perhaps what he could tell us would be of value. I met Henny Grover. Henny? Who's that? All right. Henry. But Henny's what I called him, see? Anyways, I met him in Ontario in 1894. Henny was working on a claim. In fact, it was the very gold mine that started him on the road to wealth. Henny hired me as a foreman, and it weren't too long before we was tight as two babes in the same cot. Now, pretty soon... 
there was what you'd call a dispute over one of Henny's claims by a bloke named Dennis Waldman. Waldman, he had a claim alongside Henny's, and they was forever arguing over boundary lines. This feud went on for some time. Why, it came to blows more than once. But finally, Henny seemed to win out over Waldman. How did that come about? I can't rightly say. But Waldman suddenly left the country. So there you have it. So there we have what? Don't you see? If you find Waldman, you just might find Henny's killer. That dispute they had, well, it weren't over no small amount of money. And Waldman, he was a mean cuss for a fact. And not too likely to forget how he lost that fight with Henny. Did Mr. Grover ever say anything to you, directly or indirectly, that could throw any light on his death? No, I reckon not. Henny and me, we kept in touch with each other over the years. Letters and occasional meetups. But he never gave me no hint that his life was in danger. Are you still in the mining business, Mr. Clayne? No, sir. I gave that up a while back. Nowadays, I occupy my time with a small string of racehorses. In fact, I'm between racing meets. Come into the city for a rest two days before Henny'd been killed. But things have been busy, and I never got a chance to visit with Henny this go-round. My trainer turned out to be none too honest, see? So I fired him and was looking for a new one. Where are you staying, Mr. Klein? The Marquis. I'll be in the city another week or ten days. How come you've waited three days before coming in to tell us all this? Well, I wasn't no way sure I'd ought to do it. I wasn't never sure in my mind. But what Henny done for that fellow Waldman, he disappeared sudden-like, see? And I didn't want to do nothing to dirty Henny's name. But finally, I decided to do the right thing. And then, there's another thing. You found some fingerprints in Henny's house, didn't you? The newspapers said so. We did. I want you to take mine and match them up. I was out with a girl the night of the murder. <laughs> All night. And she's a good girl. Got a husband and a lot of folks. So it wouldn't be right to drag her into this and make her my alibi. In case you'd maybe think I killed him. So I thought I'd better come down here and tell you all about it. Get you to take my fingerprints and have it all over with. We had Clayne's fingerprints taken and they were not at all like the murderers. After we pumped Clayne dry, I went out and sent a telegram to our Toronto office asking them to get a line on the Waldeman angle. Then I hunted up a couple of boys who eat, sleep, and breathe horse racing. Clayne? Sure. We know him. Sure. <laughs> yeah, Clayne's famous, isn't he? Yeah, famous. <laughs> Clayne's well-known, you might say, for owning a string of near horses. More like plow horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these snags of Clayne's, they don't get much action. But he keeps trying, don't he? <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's persistent. I'll give him that. <laughs> 
At the Marquis Hotel, I got hold of the house detective, who was a helpful chap so long as his hand is kept greased. He verified my information about Plain's status in the sporting world and told me... He stayed here for several days at a time, on and off, over the past couple of years. Hmm? Nah, oh, we ain't got a way to trace his calls. But we can have the switchboard gals listen in on any talking he might do in the next few days. Ned Root was waiting for me next morning when I got down to the office. I worked on Grover's accounts all night, and I think I found enough to give you a start. That's good, Ned. Tell me about it. Within the past year, that's as far back as I've gone so far, Henry Grover drew out of his bank accounts nearly $50,000 that can't be accounted for. That's fifty grand above and beyond the 10000 he drew out the day of his murder. Here are the accounts and the dates drawn. Hmm. Okay. Looks like on May 6th of last year, 15000 June 10th, 5000 August 1st, another five. Tenth of October, ten grand. Yes. And look at this last one. January 3rd of this year. 12,500. 47,500 bucks. Yep. Somebody was sure getting fat off our victim. With a writ from the prosecuting attorney in my hand, I visited the local telegraph offices with a request for information. They put up a howl about respecting their client's privacy, but they let me put a clerk in each of the offices to check their files. Back at the marquee, I took a look through their old registers. Joseph Klein had been there from May 4th to the 7th and from October 8th to the 15th of last year. That checked off two of the dates upon which Grover had made his withdrawals. I had to wait until nearly 6 o'clock for my information from the telegraph companies, but it was worth waiting for. On the 3rd of January, 1923, Henry Grover had telegraphed $12,500 to Joseph Klein in San Diego. The clerks didn't find anything on the other dates I'd given them, but I wasn't at all dissatisfied. I had Klein fixed as the man who'd been getting fat off Grover. I sent Dick Foley and Bob Teal over to Klein's hotel. You two plant yourselves in the lobby of the marquee. I'll follow along a few minutes later to talk to Klein, and I'll try to bring him down to the lobby where you can get a good look at him. Then I want him shadowed until he shows up at police headquarters tomorrow. I want to know where he goes and who he talks to. If he spends much time talking to any one person, or if their conversation seems very important, split up. One of you boys trail the other man to see who he is and what he does. If Klein tries to blow town, grab him and have him thrown in the can. But I don't think he will. Righto. Dick Foley is the agency's shadow ace, and Bob Teal is a sharp youngster who will be a world beater someday. I gave them time to get themselves placed, then went to the hotel myself. Klein was out, so I waited. He came in a little after 11, and I went up to his room with him. All the signs point to Grover's having been blackmailed. Do you know anything about it? No. Grover drew out a lot of money from his banks at different times. You got some of it, I know, and I suppose you got most of it. What about it? <laughs> I told you that me and Henny was pretty chummy, didn't I? Well, you ought to know that all us fellas that fool around with the nags have our streak of bad luck. Whenever I'd get up against it, I'd hit Henny up for a steak 
like a Tijuana last winter. Then he let me twelve or fifteen thousand, and I got back on my feet again. He ought to have some of my letters and wires in his stuff. If you look through his things, you'll likely find them. Suppose you drop into police headquarters at nine in the morning, and we'll go over everything with the city dicks. I wouldn't make it much later than nine. They might be out looking for you. I'd said that last bit to make my play stronger, but all he gave me in response was, "Uh huh." I went back to the agency and planted myself within reach to a telephone, waiting for word from Dick and Bob. I thought I was sitting pretty. Clayne had been blackmailing Grover. I didn't have a single doubt about that, and I didn't think he had been very far away when Grover was killed. That alibi of his, spending the night with a woman, sounded all wrong to me. But the bloody fingerprints were not Clayne's, unless the identification bureau had made a grievous error, and the man who'd left the prints was the bird I was setting my cap for. Clayne had let three days pass between the murder and his appearance at headquarters. The natural explanation for that would be that his partner, the actual murderer, had needed nearly that much time to put himself in the clear. He'd taken three days then. I was giving him about nine hours now. Time enough to do something, but not too much time, hoping that in his haste, he'd tip off Dick and Bob to his partner, the owner of the fingers that had smeared blood on the knife, the table, and the door. Yeah. Foley. Lane left Marquis minutes after you. Trailed him to the apartment house, Polk Street. Still there. Thanks, Dick. It's quarter to one now. I'll meet you there in 20 minutes. Hiya, boss. Claims upstairs in apartment 27. Vestibule directory shows the name of George Farr, F-A-R-R, in that flat. Good work, Bob. Dick, I'll hang around a little while with you, see if our man comes out. I ended up sticking with the boys until about 2 a.m. when I went home for some sleep. At 7, I was with them again, but Clayne didn't come out until a little after 8. Here's our boy. Heading down Geary Street. After him, boys. I'll head across the street for a chat with the manager. The manager informed me that George Farr had been living there for four or five months, lived alone, and was a photographer by trade with a studio on Market Street. I went up to apartment 27 and rang the bell. Uh, yeah. I'm from the Federated Detective Agency, and I'm interested in Joseph Klein. What do you know about him? Nothing. Nothing at all? No. Do you know him? No. What can you do with a bird like that? I gave him a look and said, Far, I want you to go down to headquarters with me. He moved like a streak in a sullen manner, had me a little off my guard, but I turned my head in time to take the punch above my ear instead of on the chin. At that, it carried me off my feet, and I wouldn't bet a nickel that my skull wasn't dented. But luck was with me, and I fell across the doorway, holding the door open, and managed to scramble up, stumble through some rooms, and catch one of his feet as it was going through the bathroom window to join its mate on the fire escape. I got a split lip and a kicked shoulder in the scuffle, but he behaved after a while. I didn't stop to look at his stuff. That could be done officially later but put him in a taxi and took him to the Hall of Justice. I was afraid that if I waited too long, Clayne might take a run out on me. Clayne's mouth fell open when he saw Far, but neither of them said anything. Ogar, let's get this bird's fingerprints and get it over with. And keep an eye on Clayne. I think maybe he'll have another story to tell us in a few minutes. Dean ain't here. Clayne will have to come up to the Bureau with us. 
Fells, the department's fingerprint expert, took one look at the results and turned to me. Well, what of it? What of what? This is not the man who killed Henry Grover. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure you haven't made a mistake? You can tell how badly upset I was by this. It's plain suicide to say this to a fingerprint expert. Fells didn't answer. He just looked me up and down. (laughs) Do you want to take my prints again, Mr. Slick Private Detective? Yeah, just that. Better take them yourself this time so you'll be sure it's done right. That's not a bad idea. I was mad clean through. Of course it was my own fault, but I was pig-headed enough to go through with anything, particularly anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. So I walked over and took hold of one of Clay's hands. I started to ink his fingers and realized that something was amiss. The balls of Clay's fingers were too smooth, rather too slick, without the slight clinging feeling that belongs to flesh. I turned his hand over so fast that I nearly knocked him over. Hey, watch it! And looked at the fingers. I didn't know what I'd expected to find, but I didn't find anything. Not anything that I could name. Fells, look here. What is it? His fingerprints. Anything wrong with them? I'll be. Look out. Hey, Clayne! Fells and I were suddenly busy for a few minutes, taking Clayne down and sitting on him, while Ogar quieted Far, who'd also gone suddenly into action. When things were peaceful again, Fells examined Clayne's hands carefully, scratching the fingers with a fingernail. He jumped up, leaving me to hold Clayne, and, paying no attention to my what-is-it, got a cloth and some liquid and washed Clayne's fingers thoroughly. There. Let's take his prints again. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that they matched the bloody ones taken from Grover's house. So now, there being nothing else they could do, Clayne and Farr decided to come clean, so we all sat down and had a nice talk. I told you about the trouble Henny had with that feller Waldman, right? And now he won out in an argument because Waldman disappeared. Well, Henny done for him. Shot him one night and buried him. And I saw it. Grover was one bad actor in them days. A tough hombre to tangle with. So I didn't try to make nothing out of what I knew. But after he got older and richer, he got soft. A lot of men go like that, see? And he must have been worrying over it. Because when I ran into him in New York accidentally about four years ago, it didn't take me long to learn that he was pretty well tamed. And he told me that he hadn't been able to forget the look on Waldman's face when he drilled him. Clayne said he took a chance at that meeting and braced Grover for a few thousand dollars, which Grover handed over easily. After that, whenever he found himself flat, Clayne would either visit or send word to Grover, and the money would always follow. But I was always careful not to crowd him too far. I knew what a terror he was in the old days, and I didn't want to push him into busting loose again. But that's what I ended up doing in the end. I phoned him Friday that I needed dough, and he said I should come around to the house around 9.30 the next night. He was waiting for me on the porch when I got there and took me upstairs to give me 10000 Naturally, I wanted to get away as soon as I had the dough, but he must have felt talkative for a change. Because he kept me there for a half hour or so, guessing about men we used to know up in the province. After a while, though, I began to get nervous. He was getting a look in his eyes like he used to have when he was young. And all of a sudden, he flared up and tied into me. He had me by the throat and was bending me back across the table when my hand touched a brass paper knife. It was either me or him, see? So I let him have it where it would do the most good. 
McLean said that when he read the papers the next day, he got a jolt when he saw the mention of the bloody fingerprints. He didn't know anything about fingerprints, he said, and here he'd gone and left them all over the dump. Indeed. Klain realized that Grover probably had his name written down in his papers, or at the very least had kept letters and wires, and that the police would be led to him, and there he'd be with fingers that fit the bloody prints and no alibi. So that's when Klain says he remembered Farr, who had been a fingerprint sharp in the East, so we looked him up, told Farr the whole story, and between them they figured out what to do. Yes, please, continue. Well, Farr agreed to dope Klain's fingers, and then Klain would go to the police and tell them the story they'd fixed up, and he figured that he'd be safe no matter what came out later about him and Henry Grover. And that's what he did, and we were pretty stumped for a while. So it seems. Yes, sir, but I threw a wrench in his works because I suspected that Klain was blackmailing Grover, and even if he hadn't committed the murder, he might know who did. I went to his place and hinted strongly that the cops were very interested in him, and if he knew what was good for him, he'd submit to questioning the next morning. That forced Klain into action. He went to Farr's place, but I already had Dick Foley and Bob Teal staked out to shadow him. Farr doped his fingers again this morning before he headed out to the Hall of Justice to meet O'Gar and me. The rest you know. Yes. Did you find any papers with Mr. Klain's name on them? Letters, telegrams, or otherwise? That's the funny thing. There wasn't anything. Grover must have destroyed them long ago. So we never would have tied Klain to the crime that way. So it seems. Was there anything else? No, those are all the pertinent facts. But I get the feeling you haven't told me everything. Sir? What you've just reported to me is everything that can safely be entered in your written report. Yes, sir. But there's something else that occurred that your personal sense of discretion prevents you from putting into writing? Well, yes, sir. You may speak freely. It's got no bearing on the case, you understand. Grover's son doesn't need to know about it. I understand. Well, these scientific birds are funny. There's Fells, the department's fingerprint expert, right? And there's Farr, the fellow who fixed Klain's fingerprints and thereby is looking at a nice long stretch at San Quentin for accessory after the fact. (laughs) So Fells turns to Farr and with a note of admiration in his voice says, I've seen fake prints before, but never any this good. How'd you do it? It's simple. I got hold of a man whose prints I knew weren't in any police gallery and took his prints and put them on a copper plate using the ordinary uh, photo engraving process, but etching it pretty deep. Then I coated Klain's fingers with gelatin just enough to cover all his markings and pressed them against the plates. That way, I got everything, even to the pores. And And when I left the bureau ten minutes later, Farr and Fells were still sitting knee to knee, jabbering away at each other as only a couple of birds who are cuckoo on the same subject can. Listeners, you may have noticed that this adventure ran a bit short. This is because the original story was shorter than most of Hammett's tech yarns, and the producers don't like to pad these plays with unnecessary details, just for the sake of time. I believe Mr. Lutz would go red in the face and start making noise about gilding the lily, and we don't want that. Oh no, we certainly don't. However, it has come to our attention that Mr. Hammett himself wrote a letter to Black Mask Magazine, the publication that first produced his stories, and the subject of that letter, similar to the main plot point of tonight's adventure, was fingerprints. So we will utilize our remaining time by presenting it here. 
What follows is the exact transcript of that letter. Ladies and gentlemen, the next voice you hear will be that of our story's author, Mr. Dashiell Hammett. Since writing Slippery Fingers, I have read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle wherein August Fulmer, Chief of Police of Berkeley, California, and President of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, is quoted as saying, although it is possible successfully to transfer actual fingerprints from one place to another, it is not possible to forge them. Quote, Close inspection of any forged fingerprint will soon cause detection. Unquote. It may be that what Farr does in my story would be considered by Mr. Volmer a transference rather than a forgery. But whichever it is, I think there is no longer reasonable room for doubt that fingerprints can be successfully forged. I have seen prints that, to me, seemed perfect. But not being even an amateur in that line, my opinion isn't worth much. I think, however, that quite a number of those qualified to speak on the subject will agree with me that it can be, and has been done. In the second Arbuckle trial, if my memory is correct, the defense introduced an expert from Los Angeles who testified that he had deceived an assembly of his colleagues with forged prints. The method used in my story was not selected because it was the best, but because it was the simplest with which I was acquainted, and the most easily described. Successful experiments were made with it by the experts at the Leavenworth Federal Prison. Sincerely, S.D. Hammett, October 15, 1923. You have been listening to Slippery Fingers, Episode 3 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech and Horsey Boy 2. Jordan Brewster as Frederick Grover and Bob Teal. Paul Arbisi as Barton, Detective Fells and the Voice of Hammett. Jeff Moon as Ned Root and George Farr. John Bell as Horsey Boy 1, Detective Dean and the Marquis Hotel Detective. Jason D. Johnson as Sergeant O'Gar. Frank Guglielmelli as Joseph Klein, Marcalita as Dick Foley, and Joe Stofko as The Old Man. Music was by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Slippery Fingers was written by Dashiell Hammett and appeared in the October 15, 1923 issue of Black Mask Magazine under the pseudonym Peter Collinson. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonius Productions. This program was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Join us again soon for Episode 4, The Black Hat That Wasn't There. Sixty-three Audio Eighty-eight Production This is...